I've missed you guys so much. I have missed you so, so much. Um, and so it's just wonderful to be back. It's wonderful to be back to see everyone and to connect with you. And, uh, and I must say that my life is absolutely richer for, for you being in it, every one of you. I've missed you terribly. It's not actually good for me to be away from church for too long. I get very distracted. Um, but it's wonderful to be back. And so how is January treating everybody? Doesn't sound so. Doesn't sound so good. I, uh, on the way back from our holiday, I listened to Nick's message. And uh, in the car, we listened to his message. And, and he used a term that you will hear frequently. You'll, you'll see it on, in the media or on billboards. And uh, he used the term January. Yeah. And I thought we should change it to Januarosity. Yeah, see, I did that. Yeah. Because we're going through a series called More Than Enough, and we're going to look at generosity. We're going to look at generosity. Radical, extravagant generosity. And it sounds a little crazy, because we live in South Africa, and the conditions can be tough here, especially in January. Also, I've noticed in myself, but in those around me, that we are inherently selfish. We are inherently selfish selfish. If there's a parent here that has two children or more, you will know how frustrating and exhausting it is trying to teach siblings to love each other, to share with one another, and to serve each other. It's a nearly impossible task. I'm not talking about my kids. My kids are wonderful, so don't feel bad. I've got all three of them here this morning. But, But selfishness is actually ingrained in our worldview. Our worldview is selfish. That's why when you look at magazine covers on the racks, it'll speak of self-worth, self-love, self-fees. You do you, I'll do me. There is no biblical pattern for those statements in the Bible. There is no pattern of that. There's no evidence of those things in the Bible. That's the worldview. Romans 12.2 teaches the contrary. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So don't do what the world does. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's what Nick spoke about last week. Nick spoke about generosity not being a money issue, but being a mindset issue. It's a mindset thing. It's not money. The the problem with us is that we need our minds to be renewed so we understand generosity. It's not about money. Generous people have a transformed mind. They've got a different mindset. They think differently about money, about resources, about time, completely differently to the world. So it's countercultural, and that's what we're going to look at this week. We're going to look at the qualities of generous people, because there's something about generous people, and I want to know how they think. I want to know what their mindset is so that I can become more generous. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. But I want to limit our discussion to generosity to Christians, to believers, to followers of Jesus. Because whatever we do, whatever we sow, and whatever we give, it has to be done in faith, otherwise it's worthless. Listen carefully. Whatever you give, whatever you do, whatever you sow, if you don't do it in faith, it's worthless. It's worthless. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says that your good deeds and my good deeds are like a rag that's been soaked in menstrual blood. It's like Tampax, used Tampax. That's what the Bible says. It's unbelievably harsh language. And I've always battled with it because it's so harsh. It's, it's almost so confrontational. 
It actually actually sounds offensive when I say it. Even when I prepare it, I battle with it. And And I've wrestled with it. Why would God say that my good deeds are like a, like a rag soaked in blood? You know why? He doesn't want good deeds soaked in my blood. He doesn't want his deeds soaked in my blood, sweat, and tears. He doesn't want my hard work on his, on his good deeds. That's why he says that. You see, it's got to be washed in the blood of Jesus. If you do anything outside of faith, it's worthless. Romans 4.23 actually goes on further, and it says, whatever proceeds, sorry, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Everything that you do that has no faith base attached to it is sinful. And so you'll see these amazing charity organizations on the news. Amazing. They do incredible stuff. Huge. Massive projects. They undertake it. They complete it. It's wonderful. They do incredible work. But it's not done in faith. And you know what the result is? Is that the organization gets the glory. God doesn't get the glory. See, he wants the glory. He wants the glory. He doesn't need our good deeds. He wants us to do it by faith. He wants us to sow, to give, to love by faith so that he gets the glory. That's what Timon came up and spoke about. You see, we're a, we're a city on a hill. We give light so that he gets the glory. It's not about us, not about my, my glory. And so generous people are people of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the platform for this morning. I'm not speaking outside of it. I'm not speaking to anybody else. If you're not a Christian, I'm not speaking to you this morning. You're off the hook. I'm speaking to people who have faith in Jesus. We are generous people because the deeds that we do, the good things that we do, are washed by the blood of Jesus. All right, that's the starting point. So if you can open your Bibles, I hope you've brought them. Uh, we're going to read some scripture. And then we're going to look at a couple of qualities of generous people. So if you can put up Luke, please. Luke 19, and we're going to read Luke 19 from verse 28 to 34. You can follow me on the screen. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So this portion of Scripture actually appears in four Gospels, in all four Gospels, and it's known as the triumphal entry of Jerusalem, its real king. And as prophesied in Zechariah, he's going to enter the city riding on a colt. It's a young donkey. One that has never been ridden. That's what the Scripture says. So it belongs to someone, but it's never been used, ever. It's never been used by its owners. And you will notice that he doesn't ask for the donkey. He doesn't ask for the colt. What he says is, untie it, and if they ask, you tell them. He doesn't ask permission. When the disciples untie it, the owners. That scripture that was up on the board is all written in capital letters. But if you go and have a look in your Bible, who's got a Bible? That word, owners. 
Do you have it there? Is it a small O, big O? Small O. So they're small O's. Yeah. So this is how it actually reads. It says that he tells them to go and fetch it. And when the small O's ask about it, they say, the Lord, small L, big L. Big L. The big L needs it. And they release it. They release it. Without question. See, we overrate ourselves. I had a wonderful holiday with some friends. They've worked very hard. They've done very well. But they live under an illusion that everything belongs to them because they've worked and they've earned it. It's wrong. The song we sang as we opened worship was from Tree 63. It says, even the breath in your lungs belongs to him. We live under an illusion that everything belongs to us. No, we just manage it. We just manage it. The money in my bank account, the little that's there, belongs to him. My business belongs to him. Your lounge suite belongs to him. Your dining room belongs to him. If he needs it, you should release it. The coffee in your coffee machine belongs to him. The breath in your lungs belongs to him. It all belongs to him. We somehow think because we have things, it belongs to us. No, it doesn't. It belongs to him. It all belongs to him. We've got it wrong. Psalm 50, verse 7 to 12. I'm not going to put it up the board. It says this. It says, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. Or concerning your burnt offerings, which are always before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or a goat from your pen. For every animal in the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field. If I were hungry, I would not tell you because the world is mine and everything in it. That's God speaking. He owns it all. He's the owner of it all. It's all his. Everything you have is his. He gets all the glory, all the honor, all the worship. He doesn't need our good deeds washed in our own blood because it all belongs to him. So point number one, generous people understand ownership. They understand ownership. They understand that God actually owns it all. We just manage it. He gives us the pleasure of using it, of earning it, of enjoying much of it, but it's his. And when he asks for it to be released, when he tells us to release it, we release it without question. Guys, with me? Sounds harsh. It'll get better. Luke 19, verse 30. You can put up verse 30 for me. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. What resource in your life have you tied up that you could use for serving somebody else? These two O's, or three O's, I don't know if it says owners, I'm not sure if there's two or three, but these, these, these O's, they untie a resource which has never been written and they release it for the use of somebody else. I don't believe for one second that they understood the monumental significance of what they had just done. I don't think they understood the ramifications of untying a cult and giving it to Jesus, what that would entail. I don't believe it. I don't believe they could see the consequences, whether short-term or long-term, of their actions. Who's read Russie's autobiography? Russie Erasmus. 
entitled simply Rassi. Anyone read it? It's a great book. I'm going to read you some of it. But I mean, everyone here knows who Rassi Erasmus is, surely. Yeah? He was a Cheetahs and Lions eighth man. He's a former Springback. He's a two-time Rugby World Championship head coach and director of rugby. It's also from Dispatch. Kirat. And he's had a glittering rugby career. Glittering. His friends are international rugby players, coaches, um, directors of rugby. They are sports, professional sports analysts, psychologists, mentors that have guided him and led him. This book is full of names of famous people. Famous people. Incredible leaders in business or in the rugby world. And he has been coached and worked with some of the best leaders in the world. His life has been impacted by so many people as his career has advanced. And so you would assume that someone who knew all these great and influential people would count an influential or famous person as the most influential person, as the, as the, as the player that's had the greatest impact on his life. That's what you would assume when you read the list of names in this book. But I want to read you something here. The player who had the greatest impact on my life was the dispatch first team captain, Gideon van Rensburg, leading the team when dispatch twice won the national championships. His day job was working for the municipality where he knew my mother. Gideon made sure that the municipality ran efficiently and was the go-to guy when things went wrong, if there was a power outage or a water leak. And because he was the captain of dispatch, he was a big deal in town. He'd seen me playing at school in my matric year, and one day he told me that I needed to get stronger if I wanted to be more successful with my game. And without me asking, he started coming to my house every morning at 5 a.m. to take me to the local gym to train with him. There was only one gym in town, and Gideon had the key. It was quite a primitive setup compared to the facilities that I have access today. I've never found out why he decided to help me. At first, I was worried that my mom had asked it because he saw something in me and believed I could play for dispatch one day. Isn't that sweet? If I trained properly. I never asked my mom, and I never asked Gideon. I don't want to know the truth if it wasn't that. All I know is that he did it for a whole year and it made a big difference because that year I made the Craven Week side. To this day, I find it the most selfless thing for him to have done. Why would the dispatch captain drive to the house of a 17-year-old lighty, take him to gym, teach him strength exercises, and then drop him off again and tell no one about it? It's unbelievable for me to think that he would make such an effort. At the time, I thought he would do it maybe once or twice, but he did it for a whole year. He swears. I've edited it. I remain so grateful. A nobody from dispatch. A nobody from dispatch. Selfless, unbelievable, effort, impact. The person with the greatest impact in his life is a nobody from dispatch. Two O's from Bethany at the Mount of Olives. 
selfless, unbelievable, effort, impact. Generous people are selfless. And they lay their lives down for other people. They lay their resources down for other people's well-being and benefit. That's a characteristic of generous people. And they don't tell anyone about it so that they don't get the glory. See, after all, our icon, the one that, that we serve, the one that we worship, he, he loved the world so much that he rode into Jerusalem and he laid his life down for the whole world. Jesus of Nazareth. Selfless. Completely selfless. So extravagant in his generosity, it was unbelievable. Absolute effort to put his body on the line so it could be sacrificed so that we could be free. An eternal impact. What do you need to untie in your life? What resources? What finances? Maybe it's finance for something. Maybe it's time for someone. Maybe it's resource for a cause outside of us. I wonder if those two owners followed the procession, the, the donkey owners. I wonder if they followed the procession. I wonder if they saw the people throwing their cloaks down before the cult. I wonder if they saw the palm branches or they saw the praise of Jesus that would follow. I wonder if they followed him. There's nothing in the text to suggest it, so I'm just speculating. But one of the things that I do see there is that there was no trade for the cult. They didn't get paid for the cult. There was no reward for the cult. There wasn't a financial transaction for the cult. There's nothing to suggest that at all. It also doesn't say whether they ever got the cult back or not. Did they loan it? Was it given? Did it go to the other side of Jerusalem and not come back? But you see, their generosity wasn't based on whether they received something. It was simply a generous act. The world operates according to buying and selling. Everybody here works in an environment where we buy and we sell. It's transactional. You buy at a low, low margin, you add on a profit, you sell it at a high rand value, and you make some money. Our whole world is trading-based. It's trading-based. We either trade a service for a payment or a service for a service. We farm to trade, we manufacture to trade, and then everyone down the line provides a service, gets paid for it. But all the time we're trading products. It's always a trade. In other words, when we give, we expect something in return because that's the worldview. It's always like that. The problem is that we can get so accustomed to it, our dealings with God operates on the same level. So, so what we start doing is we'll give, but we also expect something in return all the time. That's why some guys battle with tithing. They tithe and they expect like a miracle tomorrow. And it's probably the biggest stumbling block for people who want to give is that they have an expectation that if they give, they must get it back now. So we have a transactional mindset instead of understanding generosity. Because the Bible doesn't work on buying and selling. The Bible works on sowing and reaping. Totally different principle. It's a totally different principle. God's way is sowing and reaping. And by the, by the mere definition of the term, sowing and reaping is a seasonal thing. So very often, sow in one season, you'll reap in another season. But it's such a stumbling block to our generosity. The difference is that sowing and reaping is a promise from God. It is a promise 
He promises it in Scripture. He promises it. He says, whatever you sow, you will reap. And you will always have what you need. That's the promise. Can you put up 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, please? Read this with me. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I want to stop you there and I want to tell you, if we ever stand here and make you feel bad or manipulate you to put money in those boxes, you don't do it. You'll be sinning against God. If you ever feel manipulated by any one of us standing here to put money in those boxes, you don't do it. You don't put money in, you don't sow money under compulsion. It's a sin. Because then we don't understand the biblical provision. So rather don't do it. Because that provision is coupled with a promise. Because this is, goes on to say, and God is able to bless you abundantly. I want you to repeat this. So that in all things, say it again, in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. My sister-in-law owns a dancing school. For 35 years, she has invested and devoted her life to students who dance with her. She is fierce. She's fierce. She's passionate. She's driven. She drives those girls. I call them girls because she calls them her girls. Some of them are in preschool. Some of them are married. But she drives them to excellence. She will stop at nothing to ensure that they will perform excellently. Ballet and hip-hop and tap. I don't even know the names. I've just, I've seen some shows. Person. And for 35 years, she's devoted her life to it. And so many young ladies have come through her hands, and she has poured her life into them. Not just as a teacher, but, but as a friend and as a mother to some of them, and as a sister and as a mentor and as a life coach. And she's got to know their families. But she has poured herself into others. When there have been students that couldn't afford her fees, she's paid for them where she's seen potential and understood that, that something can come from this, and she's given herself to her school and to her girls. On the 13th of December, Lee got a call that my very fit and very healthy sister-in-law had um, discovered a tumor in her right lung. And she would have to wait until the 9th of January to see a cardiothoracic surgeon who would be able to cut open her chest and cut the tumor out. And so we've had an interesting holiday. We've had some real highs, and then the holiday has been dotted with times of anxiety and times of fear and times of nervousness about what the future holds. Can the music team please come up? But on the 9th of January, last week, on the 9th of January, she went to see the cardiothoracic surgeon, and as it turned out, he's the father of two girls who've danced with Linda their whole life. So she's sitting in the, in, the, in the surgery, speaking to a man who knows her for years, gently explaining the procedure, and so she feels safe under his scalpel next week. And as it turned out, his wife was on Linda's committee. And so his wife said she's going to pick her up from home, 
check her into the hospital, and because she's the doctor's wife, she's going to be with her right until she goes into the operating theater. She'll never be alone because she doesn't have any family on that side. And then as it turned out, when she walked out of the doctor's surgery, she bumped into the manager of all the nurses who turned out to be one of her students. He said, this is an incredible hospital, but the coffee's bad. (laughs) So I will check on you every day, and I will make sure that you have good coffee. And then as it turned out, the dance forum on which she has served for many years heard about her condition and has sowed financially into her treatment program. Guys, when you sow, you'll reap. It's a promise. It is a promise. It is a promise. It is a promise from God. So what starts out as January is ended up as generosity. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, in all things, in cancer, in tumor, in financial distress, in all things, at all times, January, February, March, good season, bad season, out of season, all times, having all you need. My sister-in-law has all she needs right now. She's got all spiritual blessings now. She's got people around her. She's got people supporting her. She sent me a voice note yesterday, and she said, you're never going to believe this. One of the girls that's just joined my, my studio, her father's an anesthetist. He'll be in the room as well. <laughs> he is able to bless abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you can abound in every good work. Generous people believe God's promises. They trust Him completely. They can sow because they know they'll reap. When they need, a good father will be there to provide what they need in all times. And that gives us the confidence to be wildly, extravagantly generous. Because we serve a God that keeps His promises. He keeps his promises, and he can't be mocked. Would you stand with me, please? I want to pray for us. I want to pray for me. I want to ask God to give me an extravagant heart, an extravagant heart, knowing that he owns it all. I'm just doing his will. He owns it all. I don't have to worry about the future because he is able to bless me abundantly. Because I want to live according to a principle of sowing and reaping, not buying and selling. It's not transactional. But can you close your eyes, please? Father, give me the faith to trust you with my money and resources, knowing that it all belongs to you. It says in Scripture that every good thing comes from the Father of the heavenly light. Would you change my heart and my mind about money and stuff? so that I can become generous, extravagantly, wildly, richly generous, a blessing in service and in worship to you. Would you teach me to become selfless, unbelievably selfless, so that I can impact a world that desperately needs it, and we can model who you are. Help me to believe and hold firm to every one of your promises this year, I pray that you will forgive our sins, our covetousness, our selfishness. And I want you to lead me in your ways, Father. You have my heart. 
I am your child. I pray this now.